And if the rest of you who are able could stand for the reading of God's word. The reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It is uh, good to be with you again uh, in our new site. It is uh, continuing to be a little disorienting, but also really fun for me. Um, And I'm excited to be looking at this passage with you. But before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, even as uh, thousands of years ago, your people uh, met with you at this mountain, uh, seeing you in the and the clouds, and the fire, and the smoke. So also you promise that even now, in a more ordinary setting, we are yet still meeting with you, the glorious God of the universe. And so we ask, uh, once again, uh, in our weakness and inadequacy, that you would give us the strength to hear you, to draw us near to you, to make us more and more your people who worship you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we looked at Exodus 3, uh, what we saw was, I think, a really important truth. And that is when God has saved us, it isn't just so that we don't have to worry about death. He saved us to worship him. You'll remember Exodus 3, God says... Go, tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may worship me. And you will know that I have been with you when you come to worship me on this mountain. The purpose of salvation, the purpose of rescuing God's people was worship. And now here in our passage, God's people have come to the mountain. And what does God do? He gives them instructions to worship. We oftentimes know this passage. It's famous as kind of like the basis of ethics in the Western world, the Ten Commandments. But before it's about ethics, it's really ultimately about worship. God is saying, here is what it looks like to worship me. 
And so if we are a people who want to be what we were created to be, if we want to be those who worship God, then it is wise for us to listen carefully. And so this morning, I'm just going to look through the first four of these commands, these instructions, to consider together with you how we are to worship God, what it looks like to worship God faithfully. And so I'm just going to jump right in. And the first instruction we see is that worship means making God our God. Worship means making God our God. I know the word worship for many of us has a very kind of churchy connotation. Maybe when we think of worship, if we're from a charismatic background, we think of lots of passion and people raising their hands. Or maybe if we're more from like a a Roman Catholic background, we think of worship more in terms of like kneeling and, and other things. But before we think of worship as a church event, we should understand worship is something that is an all-of-life event. Worship, in its simplest understanding, means elevating God as God. So if you think for a moment about what it is that most drives you, uh, what, what kind of gives you a sense of purpose, what you're willing to give all of your energy towards, and, and you don't even feel tired by, perhaps, or even if you do, you're going to go without sleep to get it done because it matters so much to you, well, that could be a sign to you of what you worship, of what your God is. Or, or if you think about what you are prone to daydream about when you have just kind of this time for your minds to wander, what, what you find yourself most looking forward to is giving yourself your most joy and happiness and satisfaction, that may well indicate to you what it is you worship, what your God is. Or if, if you think of when you are most prone to anxiety and to stress and to struggle, where do you turn? Where do you go for refuge? What do you rely on? The answer to that question may well indicate what you worship what your God is. Because worship is an all-of-life thing. And when we start thinking of worship in that way, we start realizing that we're actually in a very religious society. Yes, we know that we're called secular, but all you need to do is just think of all of the temples and rituals that our society has. Think, for example, about that great massive cathedral called the Mall. Filled with icons of of what perfect humanity looks like, or icons of pictures of what what the good life of comfort is. There there are worshippers who gather there regularly. Or you might consider our, our towering skyscrapers celebrating the power of work and finance and business and the economy. Or these massive worship services that happen weekly at the football stadiums or at baseball stadiums as people come to fill their lives with joy as they sing praises to their teams. We're worshipers. Or you can think of ceremonies. Think of the tens of thousands of dollars people are willing to spend on a wedding to to celebrate the greatness of romance. Or think of the hours upon hours of rituals people go through every week to give themselves, whether in gyms or salons, ongoing beauty and health. These are aspects of worship. And we don't have to just look outside of ourselves. We can look inside of ourselves how 
How we oftentimes gain our sense of purpose and meaning from work or from relationships. How, how oftentimes we feel like the way to satisfaction is through accumulation. How when we find ourselves filled with stress, we oftentimes turn to our own strength. These, these are indicators of our own worship. John Calvin rightly said that we, our hearts, are idol factories. We are perpetually making something other than God into our God. It's, it's worship. Now, to be clear, we should say that, that these things are, are absolutely right for us to love. It is right for us to love work. It is right for us to enjoy sports. It is right for any of these things. The problem is not that we love these things. The problem is that our, our love is wrongly ordered. This was Augustine's, uh, one of his great observations, that, that righteousness, that wholeness, that the right way to live involves not just loving the right things, but loving them in the right order, in the right hierarchy. And when we love things out of order, everything gets turned upside down. Uh, imagine a, a, a married couple who, after a number of years, the wife, knowing her husband well, gets her husband this old collector's edition car that he, she, he's going to spend lots of time fixing up because she knows how much he loves doing that kind of thing. And he is excited. He loves the gift. And month after month, he just devotes to the car and he never even says a word to his wife. His, his love has become disordered. He has started elevating the gift and he has forgotten the giver. And, and his life will not go well. Another example I can think of this, maybe some of you have seen that classic film, Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, it you know, stars a young Alec Guinness long before he's Obi-Wan, um, and he's this Officer Nicholson. And the story is of how this British uh, troop ends up being imprisoned in a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World War II, and they are given this task to build a bridge on the River Kwai. And at first there's kind of resistance, but after a while Nicholson decides that he is going to bring his troops' morale up by them working on doing this job well. And he's going to show the Japanese how the British do things rightly. And so he's doing, that. you know, there is this work that's being done, morale is being built, there's this sense of purpose going on. But meanwhile, there's these other British soldiers who are plotting how to destroy this bridge because it is important for the Japanese army to have that bridge established. And so the climactic moment is when these four soldiers who are trying to sabotage the bridge, Nicholson sees them, and he is so concerned that he's going to lose the bridge that he spent so much time on that he calls the Japanese troops to, start, to try to stop them, and suddenly he realizes as everything kind of falls apart, he says, what have I done? Because he has so elevated this project that the love has become disordered, and he has forgotten what his greater allegiance is to. See, our problem is... When our love becomes disordered, when we elevate things that should be lower and make them higher. And that's, that's what idolatry is. It's when we take things that are good and we love them as ultimate. When, when God is what is ultimate. God says, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me. There is nothing more righteous, more wise, more whole for you to do than to love God with all of your being. Anything else is not only idolatry, is also self-destructive. You will always be imbalanced until you realize that when you look at your bank account, that is not where your hope is. 
but you realize that every dollar you have received comes from the hand of God, and he is the one that you look to for hope. Your, your lives will always be off kilter You will never actually be able to experience joy in its fullness until you realize that everything that you enjoy comes from the hand of a loving God, and that he himself is good and the source of joy and your greatest joy. You will never know wisdom until you make your decisions not based on the question of what will make me most happy, but what does it look like for me to seek first his kingdom? And you will even never know healthy relationships until you realize that before you even love your family, you love God, and it's because of your love for him that you love all others. Worship means making God our God. God says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment that we see. So the second instruction is in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, at first, it might seem like God is just kind of repeating himself. We've already heard forbidding idolatry, but he's actually focusing on something slightly different in the second commandment. And that is, he is forbidding making an image of God, even if that image, that depiction, is of God himself. This is the sin that Israel will commit uh, at Mount Sinai. Some of you might be familiar with the, the golden calf story where as Moses is up talking with God on Mount Sinai, the people of Israel become impatient and they get uh, Aaron to make a statue for them to worship. They are not saying we no longer are interested in the God who brought us out of Egypt. They're saying we don't want to wait. We want to make an image of the God who rescued us out of Egypt so that we can worship it because that will be easier for us than just waiting and knowing that there's this great vast we don't understand it up in the mountain they are depicting the god they believed worshiped them i mean that brought them out and, and that is exactly what god here is forbidding you cannot make an image of me and worship it so you know if we hear that we go okay all right i will not make any statues of cows all right check second commandment done let's move on to the third commandment you know this is kind of an easy instruction but I probably won't surprise you that, that this commandment actually is about more than that. This commandment is God saying, you must not, you cannot be the one who defines me. You don't get to decide who I am. Uh, see, that's the second command. What it's saying, it's saying, worship means allowing God to define himself rather than us, with our own creativity, deciding what we think God is like. You know what the difference is between uh, infatuation and love? I mean, infatuation can be a really powerful emotion for any of us who've experienced it. But the thing about infatuation is that when someone is infatuated with another, it, what they are in love with, if love can even be a word that we use here, is not the person themselves but it's their idea of that person. That what they have done in their mind is they have constructed this, this perfect image of the other that's exactly the person that they want, when that's actually not the person that they are with at all. 
And really, it's only as they begin to know who that person is that mature love can take place where they actually find themselves loving the person as they really are rather than the person as the idea of themselves is within. And what God is warning us against and what we so often have a difficulty with is having an infatuated worship of God. Is worshiping God as we want him to be. Is worshiping our idea of God. Because it's an easy thing for us to kind of say, the God that I believe in, whether we say it out loud or not, the God that I believe in is like this. Maybe we are more comfortable with a God who is just all kindness and never with anger. Or maybe it's easier for us to conceive of a God who is a bit more distant and not as involved in our day-by-day interaction because that gives us more space. Or, Or maybe it is easier for us to think of God as just a God who doesn't make any demands upon our lives apart from for us to be happy, certainly not any demands that are awkward or difficult. But what you and I need to understand is when we shape God according to our own understandings, and we have a tendency to do that whether we realize it or not, we're doing nothing different from making a cow in the middle of the desert and worshiping it. We are limiting God. We are making him far less than he actually is. And notice what actually God says. He says, do not do that because I am a jealous God. And what he's saying is when you worship your idea of who I am rather than me, you're not worshiping me at all. You're cheating on me. And and not only are we being idolatrous, but when when we allow us to define God in our own thinking, we are hurting ourselves. When we worship the God that we think he is, when we pray to the God that we think he is rather than the true God, what will happen when we discover through life that God doesn't act exactly how we expect him to be? We'll be disillusioned. We'll be frustrated. God says, if you're going to worship me, you need to worship me on my terms. I get to define who I am. And what that means for you and for me is that we need to come with a spirit of humility coming before God and saying, God, I don't know you nearly as well as I think I do. As we come to Scripture, look to see who God is, assuming that you don't actually know nearly as well as you think you do. Look at Jesus, the fullness of who God is, and pray, God, show yourself to me and discover those things, especially about Jesus, that are confusing, that are different, so that more and more we might be loving God as he defines himself, not as, not as we make him out to be. That's the second command. Worship God in a way that allows him to define himself to us. The third command has to do about how we represent God. It says, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember, as a kid, I went to Christian school, and so we had to memorize the Ten Commandments, and my understanding of this one was you shouldn't say, oh, my God. Which, okay, I, I accepted that. Um, although I do remember one time uh, when I was praying before dinner, I began, oh, my God, thank you. And Because I, I felt like this was kind of like borderline that I was kind of getting away with something if I prayed and said, oh, my God. 
And I absolutely do agree that part of what this is saying is that we should be reverent in the way we even speak of God, but it's bigger than that. This command, it tells us that, that worship means bearing God's name well. It means not dragging God's name through the mud, but allowing his reputation for his greatness to be seen. One of the the books in the Old Testament that spends a lot of time on this theme is Ezekiel, which I know is like everyone's favorite book. Everyone reads, and they can probably quote chapter and verse of the prophet Ezekiel. I mean, it's an obscure book. But um, there's this focus on how Israel is the people who bear the name of the Lord. They are the people of God. When all the world looks to see who God is, they look at Israel. What has Israel done? They have offered their children to God in sacrifices, something that God never wanted. They have been idolatrous, and as a result, God has punished them. He has sent them away from the promised land. And what has everyone around seen? They go, well, God must not be that great, because look at what's happened to these people. They've failed. They've lost. God says, you have profaned my name. You have demeaned my name so all the world around does not recognize how great I am. And then he says, I will rescue you. I will bring you back. I will actually give you a heart to worship me so that my name might be honored, so that the world might know how glorious I am. That's what this command is about. Do not bear my name badly. Do not drag my name through the mud. And here's why this is important for us to consider. What happens when you are baptized? You are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You bear the name of the true God. We as a church bear the name of the true God. He has entrusted us, and this is a sobering thought, he has entrusted us with his reputation before the world. Now think about that. I would suggest to you that the the single greatest damage to Christianity is not done by powerful political rulers who seek to stop and oppose the Christian faith. The greatest damage is not done by secular thinkers who seek to disarm it and speak against it. The greatest damage done to Christianity is by Christians themselves. Through their idolatry and hypocrisy, dragging the name of God through the mud. How many of us know someone who grew up in the church and is no longer identifying themselves as a Christian because of what they saw in the church? Because they became disillusioned as they saw hypocrisy or a lifelessness or cruelty. What they're seeing is idolatry. When a church ignores the biblical teaching about marriage and divorce for the sake of allowing people to follow their own dreams of happiness, they are committing idolatry and they are dragging God's name through the mud. When, When pastors endorse political figures and refuse to criticize them, even when they're immoral, they refuse to do what John the Baptist did because they want to make sure they hold on to power, That's idolatry, and they're dragging God's name through the mud. When we profess that we follow a crucified Savior who gave all for the world, and yet in our comfort we turn our back to the poor, 
when we tell our children that Jesus is the most important person in our lives and yet our lives do not display it, when we speak of how Christianity is the gospel of forgiveness and grace and yet we hold on bitterness to those who have wronged us, that is idolatry and we're dragging God's name through the mud. On the other hand, when in our, our brokenness and humility we look to God in faith and allow him to do work in our lives, when we live lives of repentance and allow the Spirit to build love within the community, we show to the world something that they don't otherwise see. And the world sees the glory of God through our inadequate community. Speaking personally, I am... I am incredibly grateful that, I, that our family has had the chance to be in this community, that our kids have grown up in this community as they have made relationships with many of you and seen your love and your kindness and your integrity. You are showing God to them. Now, that is a sobering thought, but it's also true. God says, you are bearing my name Do not drag my name through the mud. Worship means bearing God's name well. And finally, fourthly, we see in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Here is what this command ultimately is calling to us. It tells us that worship ultimately means resting in God's grace. I wish we had more time. Sabbath is such a a rich theme throughout scriptures, but for the interest of time's sake, I'll I'll, I'll go straight to the point. When God commanded Israel to celebrate the Sabbath week in, week out, he was commanding his people to rest and rely upon his grace. See, what this command is saying is at the one day of every week, the people of Israel are to stop working, stop accomplishing, stop achieving, and just savor God's goodness. And the reason they are to do this was so that they could remember that it is not what they do that defines them, but it is what God has done that defines them. It's not what they accomplish that has brought them to this place and has given them the lives that they have. But it is God who has created this world in generosity. It is God who has brought them out of Egypt to bring them to the promised land. It is God who makes them holy. And their calling more than anything else is to savor and rejoice and rest in his goodness. That's what the fourth commandment is ultimately about. Now, we are not commanded to observe the Sabbath in the way that the people of Israel But the very heart of this command continues to be something that instructs us. We are called to worship by resting in the grace of God. And it is incredibly important. I know I said kind of running out of time, but it's incredibly important that we included this this morning. Because here's my great concern. As we're hearing these instructions for worship, about how God should be our God above all else, about how we have to let God define himself to us, about how we are the bearers of God's name. I think it is the most natural thing in the world for us to say, okay, God has saved us, he has rescued us, now this is our work to do. 
God has done his thing. Now we have to kind of take our steps beyond and do something to give back to God. And that's what worship is. And let me tell you, if that's how we understand worship, that kind of God did his part and now we must do our part, it is going to destroy you. Because on Sunday morning, if we think that worship is ultimately all about us doing something for God, you will find yourself having to whip up your emotions, trying to make yourself grateful enough, sad enough at your sin, happy enough in the gospel so that God is worth it. Or in your day in and day out, you will find yourself never being able to feel the fullness of joy because you will know that no matter what you do in worship to God, showing that he is your God above all else, it will never be enough. You will always feel like you need to work more and more and more. And here's the other issue. When you are doing this, when you are seeing yourself as the one who has to give back to God because of all that he's done for you, whether you realize it or not, you're actually going to be committing idolatry. Because what is God's role meant to be in our lives? God is meant to be the one that we rely on for everything. And when we think God has done this, now it's up to me, we're saying, I am the one who needs to rely on me for everything. I am the one who has to make sure that I carry the weight of worship on my own. And so we hear the fourth commandment saying, here's what worship actually is. Worship means resting in my grace. See, it is a, it is a grave mistake for you and me to think that God brought us out of sin and now it's up to us to walk back to God in worship. It's a mistake for us to think God took care of the forgiveness side of things. Now we have to show him how grateful we are on our own. When the reality is that God not only brought us out of sin, but God is bringing us to himself. God didn't just forgive you. God connected you with Jesus because God is actually giving you the gift of being able to worship him. God doesn't just stop halfway. God is the one who woos us, who changes our heart, who enables us, empowers us to worship because he joins us to Christ. Here's here's the glorious truth. Your and my worship will always in this world be inadequate but you're not worshiping ever alone. You are always worshiping in Christ. Christ, the one who carried God's name and bore it unlike any other. Christ, the one who loves God above all else. Christ, the one who truly sees God as he is. And so as our worship, imperfect as it is, comes before God, because we are in Christ, it is perfected and beautiful in God's sight. And what's more, because you are in Christ, Jesus himself is changing you and enabling you to be more like him because he knows that the most loving thing to do is to enable you to worship him. He is loving you by changing your heart, making you more and more into the worshiper of God. So so on Sunday morning, right now, I want you to understand you didn't just come here of your own accord. God in his love gathered you here. And at the very beginning, God speaks to us, calling us to worship. 
And throughout this morning time, what is God doing? His Spirit is, is leading us in prayer. His Spirit is melting our hearts, helping us to hear His Word. His Spirit, as we come to the table, nourishes us in the Gospel. God is the one who brings us to Him. We don't come on our own accord. God, in His love, enables us to be a worshiper. And throughout the week, as, as, as we grow as Christians, more and more we realize that one of the primary ways we experience God's love is how He draws us to himself and enables us day in, day out to learn more and more what it means to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. See, before we think of worship as our gift to God, we must first understand that worship is God's gift to us. And when we see that, and we realize that ultimately worship is about is resting. It's about opening ourselves up to God and saying, God, wherever you want me to go, however you want to take me, Lord, please draw me in this way and allowing God to do his loving work in our souls. How do we worship? Worship means making God our God. Worship means letting God define himself to us. It means bearing God's name well, and it means resting in God's grace. We even have right now that opportunity to, to put this into practice. As we've heard God's word, let's take some time to respond in prayer, receiving what God has for us, what he has said to us. And as we receive it, maybe that means it leads us to confession, to acknowledge our sins so that we can experience the forgiveness. Maybe it means us asking God for help where we see our inadequacy. But let's spend some time in prayer to the God who loves us and has brought us to this point. And I'll lead us in prayer in a minute's time. Loving Heavenly Father, we, um, we acknowledge in your presence that you, the one who has made us, the one who has saved us, you are worthy of all of our love, all of our praise, all of our obedience, all of us. And Lord, we confess to you that in our sinfulness, our worship is inadequate. Lord, you know our hearts. You know that they continue to be inclined to turn aside to other things, to put our trust in, our hope in. Lord, we grieve over our sin. We acknowledge sin, and we ask, Lord, that again in Christ you would forgive us and help us to experience the reality of this forgiveness and that you would renew us that you enable us more and more to be the people who are filled with praise and joy as we worship the God who is worthy of our worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hear the good news of the gospel from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west. Thanks be to God.